ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, my foot is fucked. <laughs> Little tip, um, if something is a mile away, it is a mile away. Don't walk it. Alright, take it from me. And it was Public Chemist Chuck D. Bring the noise. Fifth Home Podcast Network, I am Charlie Taylor, and this is What's Good. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you've all had a good week in circumstances. I'll say I've had a eventful week, that's for sure. And, you know, it's been a good week. It's been a solid week. Um, so, yeah, just an eventful weekend as well, uh, especially. Uh, so, uh, Sunday, uh, went to the Jazz Cafe with my boy D to see Hempress Sativa. Um, took some amazing photos. If you want to go check that, go check that. CRT photography.carvermade.com. Um, or just check my socials. Um, they're there in some link. Um, and yeah, it's just um, well, personal socials anyway. Um, but yeah, it was just it was just amazing. Um, love the jazz cafe, best place on earth, and uh, she was just amazing. Uh, really good, really just great music all around. Um, if you're into roots reggae. Contemporary Rouge Reggae. Um, I mean, if you haven't, <laughs> if you haven't peeped uh, Hembrus Steve by now, I mean, yeah. I mean, but I can't say much because uh, I discovered it this year, and I was like, oh, why has it taken me this long? Um, but anyway, and also on Saturday, uh, which is probably the brunt of my uh, woes. Um, so there was a festival going on um, in the far side of uh, my county, basically, um, and uh, I travelled halfway thinking that I could walk the rest of the way. Um, and as it turns out, it took me a whole hour to do so. Um, and because of that, I could only be at the festival for about an hour. <laughs> so it's kind of really no point in me going. Um, but then, you know, so I got a bus return, right? So I, t- I took a bus there, right, it's halfway. And I um, I guess it was because it was weekend, weekend schedule or whatever, but it wasn't going to the place I wanted to go. Um, and like I said, it only goes halfway. So I'm like, okay, fine, I'll firm it. Because I usually walk everywhere anyway. What's another walk, right? But this one, I walked like literally just the whole length of the seafront. And it was just absurd. It was just it was just absurd to travel, even for me, a perennial walker. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, I got the I got the bus return right. And do you think that the bus would, you know? return right so i trek all the way back all the and by the way this was all in 29 degree heat right smooth breeze right and if the breeze wasn't there i probably would have died um but yeah 29 degrees regardless so i'm walking uh, i'm walking back and um uh i check i check for the bus right and it goes like um i don't know it looks it says like 11 minutes or something like that right somewhere around that area so i'm like cool let me just walk down the high street boom get just you know catch the train uh, catch the train catch the bus you know on the way back right in some ways uh but you know get get a couple of stops ahead um so i do that i look at the schedule and it goes i don't know like 45 right and i'm like okay fine sure um i can wait a few minutes um and then it and then it adds on another 10 minutes i'm like that was it was 10 minutes 10 minutes ago what's it was 10 minutes 15 minutes ago what the fuck's going on um, so I walk another two uh, stops, and uh, and then I look at the board at the, at the stop, and I and then it just disappears. The whole bus, the whole bus disappeared, guys. It just it just poof, just gone. Didn't exist. Ceased to exist all of a sudden. So I just I literally in split second go fuck it. I call my mum. I'm just like, yo, can you give me a lift. <laughs> so, and that was it. That was it. And um, and my feet have been fucked ever since that weekend, man. Like the, the Sunday didn't help either. Um, but as soon as I got the train home from London, uh, my feet started. I I I I just started limping. I was just like, fuck. And the soles of my feet, uh, soles of my right foot, are just completely, uh, just kaput, man. I just, I just uh, I, even when I try and walk, walk the dog, uh, I kind of just reaggravate and I have to like start limping in some way. Or if I put my foot up like I'm wearing heels, it works. It, it, eases, it eases the pain a bit. It's weird. 
But anyway, apart from that, solid. Can't complain. Really eventful. And uh, yeah, man, just look forward to you know more stuff coming in uh, uh, slowly um, as I go. Got a few shows coming. I'm seeing Apollo Brown in a couple of weeks with like a Sky Zoo, uh, Guilty Simpson, and there's somebody else uh, of note. I forget. Uh, oh, Big Poo, I think, of Little Brother. Um, so that'll be amazing. Just a lot of people to check off there. Um, definitely want to see uh, Sky Zoo anyway. So that'll be a great uh, addition. And um, yeah, you know, and uh, I was supposed to see Rakim, the God MC, uh, next month, but now that's in June. Um, there's actually a possibility that I might be able to go across the tracks next year and see Rakim in the same weekend. Uh, I dare you to find a better weekend than that. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, reschedules, uh, things happening. Um, and yeah, it's all good. I can't complain. I'm feeling good right now. But anyway, let's jump around the show. Um, we've got two societies, a film and TV, and an arts, or you can class that, or you can class both of the arts, but whatever. And um, yeah, four minutes before we begin, email to uh, this one, all that, all that, all that in the full show notes. Please go pick the articles for yourself and give them a read and support the rise and make the show possible. And with that said, let the beat drop and let's get into the show. In a week where parts of the UK goes into a drought, um, it has actually been raining the past couple of days, so not completely drought, but um, it was for a while. Like, literally, the grass is so yellow everywhere. Uh, writer Salman Rushdie is uh, stabbed on stage in New York. Um, so apparently he's uh, on the road to recovery there. Apparently lost an eye. Ooh. Uh, horrible scenes. Uh, David Bowie tops a Sky Arts list of Britain's 50 most influential artists of the last 50 years. And I found this interesting, not because of David Bowie, but because he was number two. Shout out to Steve McQueen, man, the director. Um, I can't believe he even got second. That's crazy to think about. Uh, I think like Michaela Cole got 10th or something. It's a really actually solid list um, when you really look into it. Um, but I was just so gassed that Steve McQueen was second because he genuinely deserves it. Um, I feel like he's really um, pushed the boundaries of, uh, of, of, um, of, the, of, what you can, of what stories you can tell now. Um, obviously he started off with 12 years save or not started off but you know he, he popped off as 12 years and then um, you know but he's been doing the Uprising documentary did small acts in the past year just those two alone just those projects alone have just really opened my eyes to what's possible um, so huge respect to Steve McQueen and Chad Bowie, of course as well UK is the first country to approve a COVID, new COVID booster um, that targets both the original virus as well as the Omicron uh, and lastly, Liz Cheney gets clapped in her American Republican primary. Uh, but we begin uh, with film and TV. And this is all about Sasheen Littlefeather, um, the American Native, uh, Native American activist um, who uh, almost, almost half a century ago, I thought it was over half a century, but almost half a century apparently, uh, 73, so 49 years, um, basically uh, went on to the Academy, well, It'll, it'll explain in the article, but um, yeah, uh, she finally received her apology um, from the American uh, Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, or the people the uh, that host the Oscars. Uh, for those who don't know, and uh, yeah, it's just it just blew my mind seeing this. I was just like, what the fuck took so long? Um, but anyway, uh, this I just found this one uh, little explainer uh, by Joe Somerlad uh, via the Independent. It's called Sashi Little Further. Who is the American? Native American activist who refused Mar uh, Marlon Brando's Oscar. Says Trump Owen. Native American activist and actress Sasheen Littlefeather became famous around the world on 27th of March 1973 uh, when she ascended the stage at the 45th Academy Awards to reject the Best Actor statuette intended for Marlon Brando live on TV. The acclaimed method actor, who won for his iconic performance as Italian mob boss Vito Corleone in Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather, uh, declined to attend the Oscar ceremony in Los Angeles and asked Miss Littlefeather, 26 at the time, to go in his stead to refuse the trophy on his behalf. The star had become interested in Native American rights, in particular the brutal federal response to Wounded Knee, at which more than 300 Lakota men, women and children had been massacred by the US Army on 29th of December, uh, by the U.S. Army on 29th December 1890, 
and regarding which protests were then ongoing. Born Marie-Louise Cruz in Salinas, California, uh, 14th November 46, Miss Littlefeather had appeared in small roles in the film's Counter a Crime and The Laughing Policeman. Um, minor side note, it has nothing to do with anything, but um, I miss film titles actually had effort put into them. The amount of things I've seen, and even Jordan Peele like, saying Us and uh, Nope, um, and there's a show called Them on like Sky Sci-Fi here, and I'm just like, uh, what was it? What was another one? Uh, was there like a they or something? This is what this is what I mean. Just naming shit with one word that is frequently used everywhere pisses me off. It's so it lacks so much creativity. It actually, honestly, puts me off even watching it. Like just stupid names like that. I hate it. Uh, shout out to the Laughing Policeman. Great name. Anyway, uh, uh, Council Crime Life Policeman. Uh, but was more prominent as an indigenous rights campaigner. Dressed in a traditional Apache buckskin dress, she ascended the steps to the stage to the evident surprise of award presenter, uh, presenters Roger Moore and Liv Ullman. Uh, she refused to even touch the gold statuette offered to her by Moore and instead spoke for about 60 seconds, telling the almost entirely white audience, quote, Hello, my name is Sashin Littlefeather. I am Apache and I am president of the National Native American Affirmative Image Committee. I'm representing Marlon Brando this evening, and he has asked me to tell you in a very long speech, which I cannot share with you presently because of time, but I'll be glad to share with the press afterwards that he regret very regretfully cannot accept this very generous award. And the reasons for this being are the treatment of American Indians today by the film industry, dot, 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 excuse me, dot, dot, and on television in movie reruns, and also with recent happenings at Wounded Knee. I beg at this time that I have not intruded upon this evening and that we will in the future, our hearts and our understandings will meet with love and generosity. Thank you on behalf of Marlon Brando, uh, unquote. I mean, as protests, um, as protest speeches go, that's probably the most night, it's probably the most generous one I've ever heard. Um, literally apologizing halfway for, um, I hope this doesn't ruin the evening. <laughs> that's, that is absolutely outstanding. Uh yeah, intruded upon this evening. Crazy. I would I'll be just fucking firing flames. Uh anyway, uh some booze rang out, as did some applause. Uh Western star John Wayne was reportedly waiting in the wings to confront her, and was said to be uh, so furious he had to be restrained by six security guards. God I hate that dude so much. Just on the face, I just hate him so fucking much. Like everything about him just pissed me off. Anyway, uh meanwhile, subsequent presenters Raquel Welsh and Clint Eastwood both made disparaging remarks about the gesture. Amazing. Um, outstanding. Like, you didn't need... They did, well, they're presenting an award. Why, why are you talking? What the fuck are you talking about? You think Will Smith... This is... It, okay, I'm gonna, let, me just, let me just finish this cycle, because I just, I, just, I just got the obvious comparison, um, but I don't want to jump the gun. Quote, uh, I focused in on the mouths and the jaws that were dropping open in the audience, and there were quite a few, Miss Littlefeather remembered recently. But it was like looking into a sea of Clorox, you know? There were very few people of colour in the audience. Absolutely amazing. Clorox. Sea of Clorox. I want to use that someday. Oh, God. Sea of Clorox here. Um, later that evening, she did read out the full statement Brando had prepared at an Oscars press conference, the text of which was published in the New York Times the following morning. Excuse me. However, Miss Littlefeather has since claimed that she was silenced. Quote, quote, silenced um, by Hollywood following the protest and dis, uh, despite appearances in Freebie and The Bean, uh, the trial of Billy Jack, both nights so four, uh, Johnny Firecloud and Winterhawk. See what I mean? Great fucking names. Where are these names now? Get creative, people. Come on. Uh, she did not make another movie between 1978's Shoot the Sundown and 2009 documentary Real, spelled R-E-E-L, Injun. Um... She has since been made the subject of another documentary, Sashin, Breaking the Silence, in 2018, but has only now received an apology from the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences over the abuse she suffered in response to her brave stand. In a letter of reconciliation posted to the Academy website on Monday 15th of August, the institution's former president, David Rubin, acknowledged, quote, the abuse you endured because of this statement was unwarranted and unjustified. The emotional burden you have lived through and the cost to your own career in our industry are irreparable. Uh, for too long, the courage you showed uh, has been unacknowledged. For this, we offer both our deepest apologies and our sincere admiration, unquote. 
In response, Miss Littlefeather, now 75, has agreed to speak at the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures on the 17th of September to discuss her experiences and the future of indigenous representation on screen and has expressed her happiest at the belated bid to make amends. Quote, this is a dream come true, she said in a statement. It is profoundly heartening to see how much has changed since I did not accept the Academy Award 50 years ago. I am so proud of each and every person who will appear on stage, unquote. Well, she seems like a very up, um, upbeat person, very optimistic, and I respect that. Um, but I'm me, and I'm cynical as shit when it comes to this. How the uh, the the audacity to apologise nearly fifty years after what is taking you so fucking long? It doesn't make sense to me. It really jars me at how long they took to apologise. Um, you might you might be playing devil's advocate and go, well, "What does they need to apologise for?" Yeah. You know what the fuck they're doing. You know what the fuck they're doing. You do one thing and everybody casts you out in that industry. Same with music, same everywhere. Why do you think it's hard for people to speak out about certain things? You know what I mean? You think... Anyway. And obviously the easy comparison is Will Smith. And it's just like... (laughs) um, (laughs) Yeah. Doesn't compare. Just doesn't fucking compare like the fact that will smith has gone has been self-flagellating himself for the past few uh i know he did an apology uh, a proper apology a few months ago and chris rock you know right i mean it, it does it does feel, i feel like chris rock has to be kind of like all right you know let, uh you know less chat but i don't know i feel like he's being a bit petty now like he's popping, he's still popping jokes about it when he goes to shows. He's still touring at the moment, and I keep hearing like, "Oh, Chris Rock said a joke about Chris uh, about Will Smith again," um, and especially after the apology a few weeks ago, he said another couple of jokes about it uh, that went that went around the root, uh, the mill. And I'm just like, "All right, bro, come on, like your your jaw ain't hurting anymore. Like I feel like you can chat with him now. You know what I mean? It's like, uh, but obviously he's just." kind of like driving the knife in and while he has every right to i feel like it's just a little bit petty now it's just like you know it's a it's a moment that will live in infamy for most people to be honest and you know might as well just have a chat like just you know just go to i don't know, go somewhere go go somewhere private and just have a chat like um reconcile in some ways um but then again chris rock career doesn't depend on will smith at all so he doesn't really have to and i respect that but anyway back to little feather um i just find it i just find this a very fascinating story on um yeah purely from a historical standpoint um it's probably something that uh you know i i do and uh, the the golden globes have actually come back are going to come back this year as well after not being after not being televised or not even happening or, or yeah, i don't know which uh last year and it's because of it's because of moments like these that I feel like it's probably worthy of them being televised. Now, should you watch them? I don't know about that. Um, and even as um, uh, viewing numbers go, uh, <laughs> the slap was probably the best thing for the Oscars at that point um, <laughs> in terms of viewership because I actually got eyes on it. I remember being up, um, awake on Twitter, and then I was just getting flooded with Chris Rock got slapped. Will Smith slapped Chris Rock on the Oscar stage. I'm like, wait, 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 what? Someone give me video right now. Need to see this. Um, and you know that, and I didn't peep the Oscars apart from that. Um, you know, and that's probably the bad side of TV. Um, and kind of like uh, making reality TV a thing. But um, yeah. So, but it's still different. It's all different now. Um, Sasheen Littlefeather doing that nearly 50 years ago when social media wasn't a thing and the whole thing and the whole speech was published in the New York Times. I've never read it, um, but it's important. Um, and obviously Native American representation is more important than Chris Rock's feelings and is more important than uh, viewing figures for the Oscars. Um, so I hope this, I hope this gets some um, more traction. I hope... Um, that she actually appears on next year's Oscars. I would actually think that would be a great gesture um, to have her on um, to either present an award or just to say, you know, a, a speech she prepared about Native American um, representation. Both would be amazing. I think that would be great. Um, but I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm saying that about a uh, an industry 
and the main awards for said industry um, that took nearly 50 years to have a formal apology to that per uh, to Sashin Little Feather. So I'm not going to hold my breath, um, but I think that would be an amazing gesture to do. hop into the arts and uh, I found <laughs> I, this is probably the oddest way of finding this an actually banging article um, so I use WeTransfer um, practically weekly uh, uh, just you know for podcasting sending vocals around da, 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 um, and other things it's just easy to send shit you know what I mean just upload it on WeTransfer get a link send someone the link and they can they can get it it's easy simple because um, Gmail doesn't doesn't help anymore um, doesn't have enough space uh, to actually send uh, things of uh, you know genuine uh, weight uh, in terms of space uh, disk space, but anyway, I was on um, I was on WeTransfer and they have like a, you know ads going through it. The whole basically the whole page um, is covered in uh, periodic ads, and uh, I found this uh, article uh, via WePresents, which is I guess a WeTransfer WeTransfers magazine arm or I, I don't know how you want to describe it. I don't know what how to describe we present. Um, but I found this amazing article. It's called Reviews, uh, Re-appra- Reviews Reappraised uh, Simran Hands on the Rise of Critic Influences. Um, so I was just incredibly fascinated by this concept um, as I was uh, giving you a quick read. And I was just like, huh, I never actually thought of that. Um, of critics, um, of art critics marking themselves um, as much as yeah as much as their work basically but it's just weird how it's commodifying and um i guess you know, Simran hands has a has a lowdown on the dangers of it so i feel, i find this interesting and uh, let's get into it uh, a critic with a cult is a critic under peculiar stress uh wrote renata adler in her review of pauline kale's collected film criticism published in 1980 in the new york review of books her historic hit piece lambaste lambasts or lambastes i say lambast uh, kale's chatty over-familiar writing style and argues that the presumptuous we, the intrusive you, and the debased note of righteousness and rude instruction used by the New Yorker's uh, star film critic was reliant on her audience's incapacity to read. Ouch. In other words, Adler felt Kale had leveraged her forceful personality and her combustible opinions for the likes. In doing so, she had built a cult following of idiots. Uh, Ad, uh, brackets Adler, best known for a, uh, as a reporter, had spent a year working as a film critic for New York Times between 1968 and 1969. Famous, she, she hated it. Adler despaired um, at the way that films had become brands for a critic to endorse. She compared reviews to marketing copy, wrinkling her nose at movie marquees that feature pull quotes from reviews and even worse, critics' names. She was writing about the 1980s, but her words feel relevant now. No doubt she'd raise an eyebrow at the critic influ- influencer who posts photos of their PR hashtag gifted merch on Instagram. A mug, a t-shirt, a copy of the book of the movie was based on, if you're lucky, a, ba- a bottle of natural wine. Apparently the serious work of criticism, discussing an artwork in detail, passing a judgement, figuring out its meaning, has always been in danger of being devalued. But criticism as work has been devalued too. Print and digital publications are streamlined their operations or else folding. The few staff jobs left in heritage media are mostly retained by critics who have uh, held onto their posts and salaries for decades. Writers of colour are being parachuted in as cheap and easily replaceable contractors while their outlets benefit from the optics of diversity. In general, uh, rates for freelance writers have stagnated while the cost of living continues to rise. In a period of economic instability... The currency of social media is all there is left. Uh, critics and criticism are more precarious than ever. It's no wonder some arts journalists are leaving criticism to make better money writing copy for tech giants like Apple and Netflix. Except in t- uh, April 2022, Netflix's editorial fans like Tudum uh, gutted its staff less than six months after launching. I came of age in the late 2000s in a suburb of Birmingham, England. I love movies and watch a lot of them on DVD which were cheap and re- readily available. I had the internet on our family com- uh, family computer, but not on my mobile phone. 
Streaming was still a few years off. The way I learned about culture was through newspapers and magazines. At WH Smith and Borders, I would flip through copies of Sight and Sound and imported editions of Rolling Stone. I saw the critic as an authority figure, a person to look up to and learn from. How else would I know what to watch? But as I started spending more time online, something began to shift. I joined Tumblr and read a lot of blogs. I found myself less interested in reviews than I was uh, in a community of other teenage girls whose posts explored things like fashion, friendship, identity, and desire through film stills, gift sets, uh, playlists, and personal essays. My knowledge networks have been de- had been decentralized. In her book, Poor Little Sick Girls, the writer and founder of Pony Estazine Lone Ga- I Own Gamble uh, describes... Uh, this era as one in which you didn't need to be an expert to cultivate a following. Instead, communities formed around people whose online identities they could relate on to, to, quote, on a visual political political and personal level, unquote. The personal essay boom of the 2010s underlined the importance of having a point of view. I feel like I slip right into that, that personal essay kind of thing, uh, for for my writing especially, uh, which I rarely do anymore. Anyway... It was a time in which writers could pitch their tents online and self-publish whatever they liked. For too long, white men of a certain demographic were considered the default, shaping the culture through their criticism. Blogs were a kind of digital revival of the DIY zine culture of the 1990s. Everyone could participate. The online online real estate had not yet been gentrified. Trend forecaster and writer Aisha A. Siddiqui writes that corporations soon began to understand personal subjectivity excuse me, as something that could be, quote, leveraged and uh, leveraged to sell and be sold to, unquote. Identity politics were marketable. Social media platforms like Facebook and Instagram encourage users to see themselves as content creators who post supposedly an expression of their personalities, tastes, and politics had a value based on likes and shares. A new generation of writers learned to market themselves as commodities instead of their work. The blogs were demo- uh, democratic but unprofitable and so eventually died. But the social media platforms that uh, people uh, once used to promote their writing are thriving. Thriving. Did I say that right? In the early 2010s, one of my favourite blogs was Ultra Culture. Uh, That's a good name. Uh, See? Another good name. Uh, Instead of them. A movie blog created by the critic-turned-filmmaker Charlie Shackleton. It was funny and frequently rude with a pointedly irreverent attitude towards the film industry and its marketing tactics. I asked Shackleton what role Twitter played during his stint as a blogger. Quote, Twitter existed, but essentially as a tool to point people towards my blog, he said. It was an arrow that led to people led people to longer form writing uh, that attempted to explore ideas to some degree of nuance. My sense now, he said, is that now for many free... Lo- what? He said is that now for many freelance critics, another quote, the social media accounts are the destination for their output. And it's about how much you can leverage that. Shackleton thinks that something changed when the retweet button replaced the manual RT in 2009. Twitter users could share others' uh, tweets with a single click. Another quote, I think retweets uh, started to mean uh, so much more than the invisible metric of uh, visits to a blog post because realistically, realistically, how many people are going to read your review from a minor outlet of a film they played a can versus the impression of thousands of retweets you might get on a snappily worded tweet about the same film. Good point. But it's not uh, social media that has tainted criticism. According to A.S. Hamra, author of The Earth Dies Streaming and film critic for The Baffler, another quote, whatever is the newest medium is the most despised medium. Movies were seen as uh, dangerous and evil. Radio was seen that way. Television was seen that way. The internet was seen that way. But it's not that. It's the rise of corporate control, he said. Oh, oh always always the corporations. Always, always capitalism. Always neoliberalism. It all, all comes back uh, uh, for me, anyway. So it's really interesting how all that works. Eh? Anyway, uh, Hamras locates the problem as uh, the merging of entertainment journalism and criticism during the blockbuster era. Another quote, criticism is not marketing. It's been made into marketing, unquote. In his own criticism, he refuses to cooperate, dispensing with conventional plot summaries and publishing outside the uh, release schedule. The idea that all movies have to be reviewed on the Friday they come out, that really hurt criticism, he said. The window to have a critical response shrinks. The window in which that response is deemed relevant becomes even smaller. It's more important to be first than to be definitive. Studios and streamers, he said, use embargoes to exert control over their films. 
They say to a newspaper, we're not going to advertise in your paper unless you respect this embargo. They say, we'd like you to not review this film until the day it comes out. They, the newspaper, need to need the advertising money from the motion picture industry. Obviously, this is a form of collusion. Hammer's path is not easy. Re- uh, re- replic- replicable? Replicable, yeah. Why do I, I struggle with that? He came through, uh, came up through zines and the early website suck.com. Oh, that's a horrible name for anything. Suck.com. Nah, that's very 2000s. Uh, <laughs> more recent homes for his writing, like N plus one and The Baffler, also sit outside the mainstream. The antagonism, however, is a healthy critical stance. Critic, uh, critics should approach brands and tech flat- platforms with skepticism and not as friendly crab rays. Ambivalence is a form of resistance. As the New Yorker critic Doreen St. Felix has said, a critic is not a cheerleader. To critique something generously is to offer analysis and assessment, to make sense of an artwork's aesthetic and political value. We need people who are able to untangle untangle it from its merit as commerce. We need critical integrity now more than ever. And I completely agree. Um, You know, I've done reviews for a couple of shows here and there um, for myself, just for myself, not for anybody who didn't pitch or anything. Um, but I just, um, I don't know, I just kind of, I, I just, I just liked writing about things, you know what I mean? Like, things I liked, especially. Um, I don't, I rarely talk about things I dislike unless it's, you know, politics on here, um, and shit, or, you know, shit I don't like on here. Um, but past that, I've re- most things that I write about is stuff that I enjoy. Um, I don't like to write about negative shit, um, unless it's, um, Unless it's a critique about something I I love, right? Um, you know, hip hop in particular, right? As a general sphere, as a general, uh, yeah, as a general sphere, um, in, in an area. You know, so I don't I don't say you know hip hop's garbage or anything like that. I say I love hip hop, but there's something wrong with it. That's kind of where most of my, if you want to call it negative, negative anything, uh, writings in the past years have have gone, but. When it comes to reviewing stuff, um, or quote-unquote reviewing stuff, um, I don't really class myself as a critic in that way. Um, not it's, it's not especially one that goes in depth with it. You know, I just write shit about like a shit about uh, shit that I like. Uh, write about shit that I like. So, you know, it, that's 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 all I did. Um, but I can see, and I ne- and I honestly never, you know, read reviews where. Uh, the person has just been given has just been given a fucking goodie bag. Like, oh, of course you're gonna guess it, bro. Like, what the fuck? You know what I mean? Like, you know, respect to geeks of color, respect to Dorian and and them. But you know, I don't read their reviews because why would I? You know, Dorian gets so much gas um from it. Uh, and then you know he's interviewing Dwayne Rock Johnson, and you know, respect it again. Respect him doing all that. Get your things right. I respect the hustle. Um, but I'm not going to read one of your reviews. It's not. It's not going to be critical at all. Like, there's no point. Um, but yeah, yeah. I I can. If if that shit was being talked about in the seven in eighties, she uh, it's, it's 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 long gone now. It's it's long gone now. That's probably why I don't read reviews anymore. Honestly, now I'm thinking about it. Uh, everyone's in on it um, in some way. So uh, yeah, just I'm I'm just I'm just off I'm just off all that. Okay, so let's talk about billionaires once again. It's been a minute, so <laughs> but I want to bring it back. Uh, shout out to Diggity and uh, and Agent Tracy. But um, yeah, I just, I just saw this article, and uh, you know, with the, with all the recent memery about Taylor Swift, um, she is literally uh, obviously. Uh, well, I don't know if it, I don't know if it, if, it, if it was even factually correct that she's the biggest pollu- celebrity polluter um, in terms of private jets. Um, but yeah, it just says stat alone. One percent of people cause fifty percent of aviation emissions. What? Crazy. Anyway, so this article is uh, by L. Folan uh, via Navarra Media. It's called "Private Jet Use Shows uh, Why We Must Abolish Billionaires," and I'm here for it. Uh, so yeah, let's jump home. Super rich celebrity Kylie Jenner is no stranger controversy. Her recent Instagram posts made people hot with rage in a way she probably didn't intend. Jenna posted a picture of the two private jets owned by her and a partner, Travis Scott, with a caption, you want to take mine or yours? 
a jokey reference to the fact that each, the couple uh, own a plane each, private plane each. While a few fans responded praising the hashtag, uh, <laughs> I think he said hashtag, the goals, uh, there were mu- uh, there was a much bigger backlash against the display of climate wrecking opulence. One respondent wrote, why do I have to limit my meat consumption and use paper straws while the 1% get to pump tons of carbon into the atmosphere for a day trip to Palm Springs and got over 61,000 likes? The couple are hardly unknown. Outgoing British Prime Minister Boris Johnson used a private plane to fly from London to Blackpool earlier this year. Jeff Bezos flew to COP26 in a private jet. And Elon Musk has reportedly ordered a new private jet worth $78 million. These cases and many others uh, drew attention not only to the extraordinary wealth of the elite, but also to the astonishing rate at which the jet-setting lifestyle of the billionaire class is pouring carbon into our atmosphere. Um, aviation pollution is damaging enough in its own right in 2019 just before air travel collapsed due to the pandemic commercial air flight contributed 784.8 million uh, CO2 emissions to global warming or 2.14% of total emissions apart from uh, that seems low honestly 2.4 I thought it would be higher Uh, but anyway 2% is 2% apart from a dip because of COVID-19 the impact of aviation on global warming has been growing steadily over time. The number of passengers has more than quadrupled since 1990, rising from 1 billion passengers to nearly 5 billion by 2019. The biggest contributors to aviation pollution in 2019 were the United States, 22.8% emissions, and the EU, 19.3, with these two major Western powers pouring far, far more uh, CO2 into the atmosphere as the result of air travel, uh, 330.9 million tons and China 303 uh, million despite the latter's population being twice as big as both powers combined but even though the West is undoubtedly the pr- primary case uh, cause of aviation uh, related carbon emissions your nan visiting Florida once a year is not what's killing the planet there is clear inequity, inequality in terms of emissions between nations but also vast inequality within Western nations in terms of who's causing the climate crisis Take the United States, the biggest contributor to aviation pollution on the planet. Whereas commercial US flights remain 13% below the pre-pandemic levels, private aviation traffic is actually higher, 15% higher to be exact. This means that while ordinary people are actually flying less than before the pandemic, the richest are flying more. <sighs> Fucking hell. This, this, just reading this kind of exhausts me and pisses me off at the same time. It's just annoying to read. This matters because private jets are reportedly more carbon intensive than commercial flights. Because of course they are. Why wouldn't they be? Within Europe, why, why, why enjoy it? You know what I mean? Just why, why, why not make it sustainable or, or anything like that? No, make it worse. Make it worse than the commercial, uh, commercial flight. Just, just because. Just, just to, just to stick the knife in a bit more. Within Europe, the Transport Environment Campaign Group has estimated that private jets are on average ten times more carbon intense than commercial planes. <sighs> oh, the fuckery. These private planes, though, aren't being used by working families for a weekend holiday in Spain. As the name suggests, private planes are used to transport ex- one extremely rich person, and perhaps their guests, which is massively less efficient. The average private jet, private jet owner has a net worth of 1.3 billion euros. The consequence of all these international and economic inequalities is that just 1% of the pe- of people causing a stunning 50% of global aviation em- emissions. Uh, eight, there's also graphs um, going on throughout this article if you want to uh, read those as well. I'm obviously not going to read them. Uh, aviation isn't the only negative impact that billionaires have on climate. No, really? You're not, no, you don't say. However, uh, last year... Analysis from uh, the we- uh, website The Conversation, shout The Conversation, big ups, showed that a billionaire's carbon footprint is quite literally thousands of times that of the average American. This is a result of their yachts. Yachts. I can't say yachts properly. I feel like saying it just, I don't know, I feel like my accent can't say it properly. Yachts. Yachts. <laughs> yachts. <laughs> yachts. You know what I mean? Just, oh, just doesn't sound well at all. It's like how Americans say twat, like twat. Like, just don't say it. Just never say it. Uh, yachts, jets, helicopters, and massive houses. Uh, yet even this fails to acknowledge the full impact of billionaires on the climate. Across the world, many super rich individuals have poured vast sums of money into supporting parties and candidates who oppose taking action on climate change. Uh, change, giving them a level of influence totally unavailable to the average citizen. 
In the 2020 US presidential election, for instance, 10 billionaires gave millions and millions of dollars to support Donald Trump, a man who is steadfastly denying that climate change is man-made and who repeatedly blocked climate action. Many of those reading this article would doubtless agree that billionaires have a negative impact on the climate. But what can we act practically do about it? Left-leaning politicians and activists have talked for years about making the richest pay for their fair share, improving taxes uh, and other such small policy changes, but given the, mass, uh, given the vast impact that billionaires are having on the structure of our planet, we need to move beyond those piecemeal alterations. Rather, we should adopt the slogan of one of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's advisors that, quote, every billionaire is a policy failure, unquote. Love that. Fucking love that. Amazing quote. Uh, amazing one line. Put that on a shirt. Governments should be doing more than raising the marginal income tax rate. They should be making it impossible for people to be billionaires, such as by setting strict upper limits on how much wealth a person can possess, as well as imposing gigantic income tax rates for income uh, over a certain threshold. This is not a new idea. Before Thatcherism took hold in Britain, the highest tax rate in the UK was 83%. Oh, oh, the, oh, oh that's a wish. Uh, there is a connect- correction uh, about that, by the way, coming after. Uh, a world without billionaires would be happier, more equal, and greener world. It's high time we made possible, made it impossible for people to become billionaires. I oh, can't wait. Uh, the correction is, this article previously stated the highest rate of tax uh, in Britain was 8.95, but thought Thatcherism, in fact, the highest was 83 and not 95, so they did uh, correct that. Um, so, yeah. Um, and apparently Elf Folan is the founder of Stats for Lefties and a columnist for Nora Media. Shout out to Stats for Lefties. Um, I actually really enjoy it there too. Like they really just do really good, really good shit. Um, hi, highly advise you guys uh, give that a follow. Um, if you want some just some a some good stats and just some really good uh points and uh um critique, I guess uh, toward and commentary as well as the good stats as well. Um, that you won't get anywhere else. Um, but yeah, I mean, what else? What else could I possibly say um, that billionaires should not exist? What what else can I possibly say um, past that? Because they shouldn't, guys. Guys, I don't think Pete. I, I've I've I I've never. I don't think I've ever handled a fifty pound note. Right. <laughs> that's how. That's how mid I've been in my life. Okay. I've never been any form of rich apart from you know the Bob Marley sense of the word. Um, I've never been monetarily rich ever, um, and I kind of hope to never be. Um, if I ever do, it will be put into something of use. I I believe. I believe I will do that. Um, but you know, I'm I'm sure many people say that when they <laughs> when they're in they're in my shoes and then they win your millions and then they just like hoard it all. So you know. I'm not going to hold any promises, but I firmly believe in my heart, and it's because I have ideas that I want to, f- I want to fulfill, and I feel like I can use the money for that, and I, you know, and I don't mind the concept of having just a sinkhole of things. I want, I'll tell you one thing I want, I want to do, um, in response to, you know, the past, how long has it been, 50 years nearly, 40 years plus of, um, neoliberalism taking out community killing community killing the sense of community okay and um things to things that are used to do things that are used to learn all right while i can't change uh the education system or i could through lobbying so there you go i could do that um if i this is if i was rich by the way right i could do that for lobbying right i could you know that'll be a possible that'll be a possibility um but then there'll also be people against me um to say no you can't do that oh that's wokeism anyway while i could do that i could also just do my own enterprise in some ways enterprise is probably not the best word but i would do my own non-profit um learning center i i would make several of them um across the country and um it is where youths can go under the age of 18 um and eight and over 18 if you want to pay for it um and and the youths under 18 go for free to learn creative skills um they are taught everything i i wanted to teach every i want them to be taught anything and everything in terms of the arts whether it's painting whether it's screenwriting whether it's acting directing cameras uh film tv sculptures fuck it like (laughs) 
Like if, if the demand is there, I want to fulfill that. I want to help you learn. And I don't see that being a very, I don't see that being a, a money maker. You know, I, I don't expect that to be a money maker. And I wouldn't want it to be. Apart from if I get any money for it, it goes straight back into the fucking, you know, learning center to create rooms for something, and you know, create studios and where people can make tracks and uh, where, uh, you know, where, where dancers can dance and shit like that and stages and host shit host plays and stuff like that you know do that kind of stuff and just and just really revitalize the concept of a the local arts um and but be the national arts as well um, i really want it to be that because it's really hard now for youths to get into the arts i feel um and it's the same with a lot of things the whole com- community centers don't exist anymore um, and I feel like that's just detrimental to the to the youth, and that's what I'd do if I was, you know, if I had any form of money. Um, that would be the biggest thing I'd do. That would be the biggest project I'd do um, that I could think of, um, apart from everything else, which is obviously, you know, make my films, make a production company, all that kind of stuff, right? Well, you know, that's that's the that's the other stuff that I'd love to do. You know, I mean, have a great team behind me, and you know, just have a big ass creative team, and we're just constantly knocking shit out. That's that's my that's my utopian way of thinking for myself and my ideas, but I don't mind having a sinkhole. But for some reason, these billionaires just love making more money and more money and more money and more money, and never it's never enough. And it doesn't make sense to me. I just don't have that mindset. It just doesn't make sense to me of why you're not gonna die with it. You're not gonna fucking die with it. You can't die with million with billions in your pocket. You can, but it's not gonna go anywhere. You ain't gonna go to where to the to the other plane, wherever that may be, with your millions and billions. It ain't gonna work. So why why you know apart from nepotism, what else is there? I don't know, man. It just pisses me off. So yeah, fuck billionaires. Uh, that's my that's my soapbox. Um, but yeah, <laughs> and fuck the private planes as well. Like, I, do, I just don't. I just really. What's wrong with first class? Is first class not enough? Clearly not. Like who knew? I've never been in business class, so who fucking knows? Actually, um, according to um, the fact that it was a 13th anniversary of Usain Bolt's uh, 100 meter record in the World Championships in Berlin, I haven't been out of the UK in 13 years. Um, so look at me, look at me. My carbon footprint is barely noticeable. Oh, I'm so good. Now give me money. Alright, we finish up with our second society. I don't know if I said there was two, um, but anyway. <laughs> uh, but yes, yeah, the second society uh, via Unheard, which I've, uh, funny enough, not heard of before. But um, I saw this and I was like, mm, it's, it's interesting. I'll give, I'll give you a spin. Um, this is by Will Store, uh, who's the author of The Status Game on Social Position, excuse me, and how we use it. Um, it's called uh, the Pollution. Pop, the pollution. The problem with being uptight, and uh, yeah, it's uh, basically uh, he's basically going to be talking through the lens of a book. Um, but uh, it's it, I, th- I think it's very interesting, especially if you're someone who's well travelled. I think you would get this. Um, but uh, I'm I've like I just said literally previously, <laughs> I haven't been out of the country like 13 years, so uh, I'm not well travelled. Um, but you know, I f- I find this interesting regardless, um, especially cultures and stuff like that. It's always fascinating. Uh, but anyway, let's jump home. It's surely unfair uh, to expect a brilliant scientist to also be a brilliant author. Some of the most valuable books I've encountered in my research have been the dreariest to read. Repetitive, dense and joyless prose turning what could have been a fascinating journey through a world of ideas into an after-school detention. Psychology professor Michelle Gelfand, though, manages to put those books to shame uh, with the lucid and fascinating Rule Makers, Rule Breakers, which achieve that cliché goal of popular science books Truly, truly changing the way a reader sees uh, sees the world. It has uh, just says see the world, but sees the world. Uh, rule makers, rule breakers explores Gelfand's research into differences between cultures. Specifically, she describes cultures that are using terms invented by Finnish American anthropologist Perti Pelto, tight and loose. Tight cultures are conformist. Rule makers 
while loose ones are creative rule breakers. According to Gelfan, tight nations include India, Singapore, South Korea, Norway, Turkey, China and Portugal. Loose nations include Spain, United States, Australia, New Zealand, Greece, the Netherlands and Ukraine. Uh, The UK sits somewhere towards the middle and is slowly becoming looser. Life in tight nations can be strict uh, compared to looser places, which have weaker social norms and a more permissive way of being. Gelfand contrasts tight Japan, where, quote, trains almost never arrive late, with loose Brazil, uh, where clocks on city streets all read a different time, and arriving late for business meetings is more the rule than the exception. If Brazilians want to insist on timeliness, they will ask you to arrive... Uh, I don't want to try and speak Portuguese. Um, Com pontualidade. Pontualidade. Uh, I'm assuming that's how you, Britannica, that's basically Britannica, uh, with British punctuality, that's basically what it is. And in notoriously tight Germany, there are mandated quiet hours on certain days during which lawn mowing, loud music and washing machine use is forbidden. That's great. Uh, after one, a Cologne resident complained about a yapping dog. A judge allowed the dog to bark for only 30 minutes a day in 10 minute intervals. How do you enforce that? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I'd rather not. Anyway. What makes it all this especially powerful is Gelfand's understanding that we absorb the rules of our time and place, internalising them so that, to an extent, we become them. The haunting but demonstrably true fact is that certain cultures produce, on average, certain kinds of human. We're a tribal species, and our brain, our pro- brains are programmed to learn local uh, norms, to follow them, and to judge others uh, by how closely or otherwise they conform to them. We need rules in order to live successfully in cooperative groups. They are our cure for chaos, quote-unquote. And we love our rules. Galfan quotes the Greek adventurer Herodotus, who roughly in roughly 450 BC observed our ethnocentric nature. Quote, if one were to order all mankind to choose the best set of rules in the world, each group would, after due consideration, choose its own customs. Each group regards its uh, own as being by far the best, unquote. Well, yeah, why would you consider anything better? I mean, unless you really hate your own culture, which I can imagine. Uh, it's not that loose nation- nations don't have any rules at all, then, uh, but, that, but that they take them marginally less seriously than the tight. And so sometimes dramatic differences arise between people of different cultures. Loose types raised in more laissez-faire, is that how you say it? Laissez-faire environment? Uh, tend to possess less self-control than the tighties. Uh, quote, people in the United States, New Zealand, Greece and Venezuela weigh much more than people in tight countries like India, Japan, Pakistan and Singapore. Even taking into account a country's wealth and people's average height, writes Gelfand. Adding that in the US, quote, uh, over 50% of dogs and cats are overweight or obese, including my own dog, Pepper. Similarly, loose countries such as Spain, Estonia, and New Zealand are some of the booziest in the world, while tight Singapore, India, and China are among the most abstemious. Is that you say? I think I, I think I said that right on on on, on immediate. I didn't feel I didn't clock I'd get that right. Um, I usually say something and never get it right the first time, but apparently I got that right. In cultures that have little tolerance for deviance, though, life can get rather hazy. Uh, Thai nations are often not welcoming of outsiders. China reportedly ranks in the 90th percentile of countries with the most negative attitudes towards foreigners. While Japan, many landlords have no foreigners policy, and certain bathhouses, shops, restaurants, and hotels deny entry to foreign customers. Closer to home surveys show that almost 30% of Austrian citizens hold anti-Semitic attitudes. Okay. Uh, Research by Gelfand and her team involving more than 33,000 people in nine countries, found loose nations to be the most tolerant, being, quote, much more willing to live next to a wider range of people, including homosexuals, individuals from different race religion, foreign workers, unmarried couples, and those who have AIDS, unquote. Okay, I don't know why that last one was added. Uh, in an especially fascinating passage, Gelfand examines the causes of tightness. Her conclusion is straightforward. It's a response to trouble. When the going gets tough, groups get tight. Each tight culture, culture her team... Uh, looked at, quote, had or has to deal with a high degree of threat, whether from Mother Nature and a constant fear of disasters, diseases or food and food scarcity, or from human nature and the chaos caused by invasions and internal conflicts, unquote. Take China. 
Here is a nation that borders 14 countries, <laughs> which I didn't actually know borders 14. That's crazy. Each of which has uh, is fallen has fallen out with at some point. As well as experiencing massive conflict throughout its history, internally and externally, China has suffered terrible assaults by nature, having lost 25 times more lives to natural disasters over the past 50 years than the US. It, is also, uh, it also has relatively few natural resources. And compared with hallucinations and suffers from poor... Uh, and suffers from poor access to safe water and significant food deprivation. Uh, it's worth noting here that tight and loose differences can also be found across the individual states of the US, with looseness found in more in the north and tightness in the south. Uh, as I read Rawmakers, it occurred to me that you could apply the tight-loose paradigm not just to cultures, but to all human groups. Uh, I apply this to the book I was researching, The Status Game, in which I note that some political movements are tighter than others, as are some religions, even uh, some corporate cultures. The tightest group of all are cults. They're extremely ethnocentric and demand absolute adherence to their rules, with sometimes terrible punishments made, meted out to deviants. Cult members, like culture members, tend to internalize their group's rules. One former participant in the Heaven's Gate cult wrote, uh, the caps are his apparently, this is in caps, I wanted to be in the Heaven's Gate program and wanted to abide by all their rules, not conforming. Uh, <laughs> uh, not conforming would be... Uh, the end of the quote was rules by the way not conforming would be uh, tantamount weird word to be uh, to wanting to be a NASA astronaut but deciding this or that procedure didn't need to be adhered to uh, another wrote we weren't here to be programmed or brainwashed we were here to be uh, here to beg or to uh, oh fucking hell we were here to beg to be brainwashed unquote it also occurred to me that it might be possible to view this, uh, the culture wars through this lens. Interesting. In the status game, I note demographic research by Moore in Common uh, that described a cohort called progressive activists as those motivated by the pursuit of social justice. You know who they mean. Progressive activists make more contributions to social media than any other group and are also the wealthiest and most, hi most highly educated group in the UK. And they have certainly tied up over the last 14 or so years, becoming more conformist and less tolerant of those who don't share their beliefs. It's significant then that in this uh, that this group has suffered a drop in perceived status. Highly educated millennials are more qualified, but 20% uh, less wealthy than boomers were at the same age. The average millennial's worth in 2016 was 41% less than those of a similar age in 1989. Oh, great. That's good to fucking know, isn't it? <laughs> well, why do I want to know that? Uh, they're finding it harder to secure job suits to their level of education uh, or get uh, on the housing ladder and are burdened with student debt, graduating with an average deficit of £40,000. Since 2008's global financial crisis, they live with the sense uh, that the game of life is fixed against them, that there is major trouble afoot for their group. Meanwhile, their enemies, exiting-minded anti-globalisation, anti-immigration nationalists, have also endured a period of trouble. Oh, have they? Oh, that's a shame. During the era of globalisation, the white working class communities of Britain have been significantly impacted by incoming populations of black, Eastern European and Muslim workers. This group feels ignored and disrespected by highly educated politicians and much of the media class, who dismiss them as little more than aggressive, ignorant bigots. So they tighten up. Oh yeah, yeah. But you have them on your politics shows, won't you? Uh, anyway, I digress. Of course they do. They're human and that's what humans do. My analysis here is speculative. While it may be impossible to prove that tightness fueled by declines in relative status is at work in the cultural wars, the evidence is there. It's also a potentially worrying augur? Augur? A-U-G-U-R. How the fuck do you say that? Augur? That sounds like I was saying augur. That's hilarious. Augur. Okay, augur. Fair enough. Learn something new every day. Where was that? Uh, auger. Auger for the future. The ramifications of the COVID economy, the evasion of Ukraine and the exit are descending. It's possible that all this pressure will tighten up, uh, tighten us up on a national level as it did in the Second World War and we'll all move closer together. The two sides of the cultural war may focus less on their own uh, local battles as their attention moves to recession, fuel bills and winter blackouts. But if these groups continue to look inwards, neither the wealthy, educated activists nor the angry, dismissed white poor will be loosening up their mindsets or prejudices anytime soon. I mean, he's not—he's not—he's not far off. I, I, I think there's—I think there's smoke there, right? Um, whether he's factually correct, right, in the scientific term, um, who knows? Uh, I feel, but I feel like there's a 
there's at least a hypothesis there that could be turned into a theory and I feel like could be looked into. Um, so, uh, s- sir, if you're listening, um, go for it. Get some funding if you feel if you if you if you can like get a grant get a, get a grant from university and do some research because I I'd actually genuinely be interested in that report. Um, I feel I've I feel there's smoke there and uh, I feel like that's probably possible and um, you know people stop caring. It, I mean it's, it it makes sense. Have people stopped talking about trans issues um, recently now that uh, you know winter winter's coming. I mean, yeah. So does that count? Does that class is tightening, um, in some ways. Maybe who knows? Um, but let me know what you think. I feel I feel like that's a fascinating, uh, fascinating uh, topic. But ladies and gentlemen, how shall I leave it there? From the Fifth M Podcast Network. I've been Charlie This has been most good. Intro music has been too much by Vanilla. Thanks to Chill Music for the bit used track. You can find both their links in the full show notes. Thanks to Nappy High. Friend of 5 e Nappy High for the bit used charismatic for the interview. You can also find his link in the full show notes. And with that said, hope you all have a good week. I shall always try and do the same. But until next time, take it easy. Ladies and gentlemen.